Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Today we're speaking with Caitlin Delaney. Caitlin is a practicing emergency physician at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, the busiest in Washington, D.C., and on the faculty at Georgetown University School of Medicine. As you'll hear, she's also branching out into industry, looking for ways to improve workforce well-being with better environments and better tools. She's also a U.S. Navy veteran and has made a career running towards what she sees as the most important challenges on the battlefield and in healthcare. She joined us to speak about her own experiences with moral injury, bringing the voice of the practicing physician to industry, creating sustainable careers for physicians, and recentering healthcare on the physician patient relationship. Let's have a listen. Caitlin Delaney, we are so happy to have you on the podcast with us today. And we found you and connected when you reached out to us after you had written a really great article that we'll include in the show notes about partly your experience with moral injury in the military, which then carried over later. And I, I was hoping that you could sort of help our listeners understand what your background is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm an uh, ER doctor in Washington, D.C. Um, right now. I um, come from a military family, from a Navy family. Uh, my grandfather, my uncle, my cousin, both of my brothers um, all in the military. My husband is also military. He's army though. Um, and I, I decided to join the military in college. Um, and I did their HPSP program. So, um, I, they paid for medical school at Emory and then I did four years of active duty after that. Um, uh, sorry, I'm skipping a skipping a phase here. So they paid for medical school. And then I actually got a deferment to go to residency as a civilian at Johns Hopkins. And after that is when I did my active duty time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my basic background. So could you go back just for one second and explain the HPSP? Sure. So that is a program that the military has, um, all of the branches of the military, where um, they will actually give you a scholarship to pay for your medical school tuition. Um, And then in return, you owe them essentially a year for a year of what they paid. So most people will do a four-year scholarship, and then you'll owe them four years of active duty and then four years of reserve time as well um, in order to pay that back. Yeah, we've come across more and more people who have gone that route, not enough people realize that's an option Yeah, for going to medical school. And it's so helpful to defer some of the tuition burden. Oh, yeah. I think that was a great option for me. I think, um, I think you do have to have um, an interest in the military in some way and in, in military medicine. But um, if that is something that's of interest to you, it's good to know about the program early. Um, and, and it worked out very well for me. I think I gained a lot of skills from that time period. I practiced medicine in a lot of really diverse locations. Um, and yeah, and then it was incredibly helpful with not having those student loans too. So you're an emergency room doctor. How did you decide to go into emergency medicine? Um, so that I, it seemed looking back, it seems like I should have known that I was always going to go into that. I was in an EMT, um, at the end of high school and early in college. 
Um, and I really liked that environment and I liked the undifferentiated patients, the variety that you saw. Um, I liked the adrenaline rush that came with it when a patient was crashing and you really had to do something about it right now. Um, but I really kept an open mind through all my rotations in medical school. Um, I liked every single one. And at the end of each rotation, I would think, well, I don't think this is exactly what I want to do every day, but I'm really going to miss like certain aspects of it. And Mm -hmm. so that would make me sad. (laughs) And then I finally did um, my emergency medicine rotation in fourth year at Grady um, in Atlanta. And the first shift, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Here it is. This is what I want to do. This is perfect. When in fourth year was that? I think it was re- it was pretty early in the fourth year, um, but I remembered that I wanted to get it in as early as possible in the fourth year because we had to start turning around our applications, and I had a suspicion right. that I was going to like doing this, but mm. um, but I wasn't a hundred percent because I hadn't yet actually been in the ER as a medical student. So I remember trying to put it in as one of the very first rotations of fourth year. So um, I want to flip gears a little bit because a lot of the people that are listening to this are physicians, but a lot of people who are physicians don't know a whole lot about the military and probably have preconceived ideas about it. Could you tell us a little bit what the military is like and what it's like working as a physician in the military? Yeah, Um, I think uh, the question of what the military is like, that's a that's a huge one. It's kind of, the military is interesting because it just like medicine, it basically has its own culture. It has its own language, it has its own customs, it has its own job titles that other people on the outside might have no idea what you're talking about when you when you start talking about it. So it's kind of interesting to be thrown into like two of these total institutions is the word for it at once. So, you know, you have your, you have like the house of medicine and then you also have the military and, and the way that the cultures combine is, um, is kind of interesting. Um, cause you have two different rank structures within each of them and you're trying to figure out how to combine them both, um, and make it work. Um, I think it, for the most part, it does, um, it does work pretty well. You figure out how to make it work pretty well. And then when you are forward deployed with a small group of people, people, it's kind of, you know, not that the rank structure disappears, it's still important, but you you get to know people on a very personal individual level. And you know that you know them um, as people and you're going to be working with them in that capacity. Um, So the military itself um, is something that I was familiar with just growing up in a a military family. Um, uh, I think it's something that you can you can um, learn about if it's you know, if you're interested in it, but it does take some time and it takes some, takes some doing. I would recommend talking to a lot of people if that's something that you think you're interested in. Um, as far as the experience in medicine in the military, I think it's pretty different based on what specialty you are. So this was something that was a bit of a wild card for me because, um, when I joined the military, I wasn't sure what specialty I was going to choose yet. Um, and I think, um, in the military, they're, uh, the population at a lot of bases, not all of them, but at a lot of bases is young, healthy um, service members and their families. Um, so the types of medical problems that you get are a little bit different. And the military always has to have a huge focus on training because um, when you're overseas and when you're deployed, um, and that's kind of the the only resource that you have, medically speaking, you have to be prepared for any eventuality. So whereas at a a home base, you might be seeing kind of lower acuity things, you have to be 
very adequately trained and have rotated through places with higher acuity things and especially trauma. Um, so <clears throat> I wasn't sure whether I was going to be doing pediatrics in the military where you can go on hospital ship deployments, like on the comfort or the mercy. Those are the big hospital ships that um, go on humanitarian missions. Um, so I thought that was a possibility. And, and uh, uh, then I decided on emergency medicine and that was a very different reality in the military. Um, that's a highly deployable specialty like uh, anesthesia, general surgery, trauma surgery, orthopedics. Um, and so you deploy every few years. Um, and, um, I ended up, uh, really loving that actually, because, um, it was a great trauma experience on my deployment. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I think that's something that would be incredibly hard to come by if not impossible at the civilian hospitals. So I'm very grateful for that, um, experience. At the same time, you know, in the military hospitals at home, it wasn't quite the patient population that I had trained with at Hopkins. Um, so that was something I was missing when I decided to leave the military at the end of 2019. I was done with my active duty time at that point, and I decided to go back to civilian medicine. And, and one of the reasons was the patient population. I was looking forward to seeing, um, you know, people with... Uh, LVADs and, and heart failure and uh, people on dialysis and just with kind of um, a lot more medical issues. So before you went back into civilian medicine, you had some experiences when you were deployed that kind of introduced you to this concept of moral injury. Could you describe one of those? I did, yeah. Um, <clears throat> This is when I first started thinking about it was um, well before a couple of years before the pandemic. Um, it, my most difficult night of deployment and, and keep in mind that we were seeing pretty terrible injuries. We were seeing a lot of IED explosions and um, mostly Iraqi army soldiers and not U.S. But um, there was a lot of trauma that was going on and, and none of that was necessarily easy to handle. But we felt like we could at least do something for these um, for these cases. And uh, we could kind of do a full court press and we could resuscitate and really try to help people and do what we could. Um, my really difficult case was actually somebody who um, had been shot in the leg. He was an Iraqi soldier and he had been shot in the leg and he came to, um, he came to our base um, in a pickup truck that was driven by some of his um, fellow soldiers. And uh, he was my job was to go out and meet him and evaluate him to see if he met criteria to be treated at our hospital tent. We were a, a you know, hospital tent um, with a 30-some person unit um, with the ability to do resuscitative surgery, um, a very tiny ICU before we would move people on um, to either Germany or Baghdad. Um, so this particular, uh, gentleman, he was probably only 18 or 19. Um, he was in a lot of pain. He was very scared. 
Um, but he didn't meet the criteria to come back to our hospital tent, which is something that I was assessing, you know, um, carefully. Um, these were rules of engagement that had been agreed upon by the country. So this was a very, very much a higher level decision. And it was based on things like our resources at the hospital tent, um, being able to preserve capacity in the Iraqi medical system and have continuity of care for their soldiers as well. Um, so there are lots of good reasons that had gone into these decisions. Um, but at the point where I decided that he did have a an injury, but he didn't, I, I didn't think that his life was in danger, um, that ultimately his limb was in danger, um, or that his eyesight was in danger. Those were the criteria. Um, I had to turn him away. Um, I did luckily have pain medication that I could give him for the trip, and I was able to make sure that he was, um, that he, you know, they knew where he was going. I was to an Iraqi hospital that was about an hour away, um, but it felt horrible to to have to do that. It felt like um, there was somebody suffering in front of me, and I, I should have been able to help him more. Um, and he really would have. Um, you know, it seemed at least that he really would have preferred to stay in our hospital tent um, and and get treated there as opposed to um, to going to this other hospital and medical system. Um, so I had I actually thought about that a lot that night when I went back to my bunker, which is where we were sleeping, um, and was just trying to figure out why it bothered me so much. And it was because I uh, felt like I knew how to how to treat him and we should have been able to help him but the way the system was set up um we weren't able to or i felt that i that i was not able to so that that sounds like you knew what he needed but your hands were tied by constraints outside of your control which sounds an awful lot like what we talk about when we talk about moral injury but that was in the context of war right right exactly and i think what you've expressed before is that that also carried through when you came back into civilian medicine. Can you describe that? Yeah, I think um, even though I had had this experience overseas, I didn't immediately connect the dots between the two until I felt myself feeling similarly um, about the whole situation. Um, but I think w the way that I think about it is, you know, even before I um, deployed and went to Iraq, um, emergency departments and also the medical system as a whole um, were very strained. I think the thing that was making them work was the people. Um, and the people were constantly doing heroics, essentially, at work and having to be very creative, having to... Um, kind of go the extra mile or stay after their shift for two hours, which was a, an unpaid two hours, just because that was the right thing to do for the patient. And so people were already kind of holding together a broken system, but I felt it felt like we were making it work. Um, and the personalities who wanted to go into um, emergency medicine and medicine as a whole were those personalities that wanted to make it work um, and wanted to create a win from it. Um, I think when COVID hit, it put so much strain on the system that even with those those things, like even with, you know, trying to stay late for for two hours or trying to go above and beyond for your patient, um, it started to become impossible to get certain things done and to care for your patients the way that you thought they should be cared for. Um, and it's that started to be 
almost every person that you saw, um, they would come in because the emergency department is a place where sort of you show up when the health system has failed you, <laughs> like when you couldn't figure out any other way to um, to get things done or to, to get treated. Um, you, there were so many people who would come in with the healthcare system having already failed them. And then it wasn't like we could pull out all the stops either and try to do, you know, try to fix this in their one visit in the emergency department. Um, they were going to wait. They might not have access to the testing that they were wanting or the treatment they were hoping for. Um, we might be understaffed um, and not actually have the nurses to be able to administer the medications in a timely fashion. Um, and just feeling like the, there were system constraints where you couldn't do what you felt was correct for the patient, um, that was when I started to get the same feeling of this, this soldier that I had seen in Iraq. Um, and I think I, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience. It was a difficult thing, and I still think about it um, sometimes, like how his eyes looked. Um, but I'm, I think that gave me a new perspective on what was going on um, during COVID and, um, and why I was starting to feel angry about the state of the healthcare system and, and really heartbroken about the state of the healthcare system, too. Um, I didn't actually fit with the classic definition of burnout, and so that's why I was kind of struggling with that with that concept. And once it dawned upon me that there might be more at play here or some different phenomenon, um, then that was when I connected those dots, and that's actually when I um, found your organization and made contact um, with you, Wendy. You tell a very classic story, and tough though that story is, it perfectly exemplifies both what moral injury is, but also the sort of person that struggles with this, right? Somebody who's tough and resilient and worked in places that are pretty austere and is resourceful and can do an awful lot of things, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that you end up struggling to do the right thing by by patients. And, and I think that's like a, a, a perfect example you give. Can you tell us a little bit about things that you've done or steps you've taken to try and address some of this? Yeah. Um, one of the first things that I did um, was I bought myself some time, <laughs> some breathing room. So by that, I mean, I basically made a strategic decision to um, to figure out how to get a little bit more time away from work. So I think that looks different for every specialty. Um, how you could possibly do that or how you could get a more regular schedule. Um, <clears throat> for me in emergency medicine, it was, I just had to talk to my employer and ask if I could go down in my shift number. Um, and so I went down to, to 0.8 FTEs. Um, that was the, that number I picked because it still maintained benefits at 0.8. Um, but even just doing that, um, I also asked for more regular shifts every week too, just to kind of decrease the, the mental burden that goes into having scattered shifts all over your circadian rhythm every week. Um, and even just having that time that gave me some space to do other things. I think, I think it's important that you're not trying to get this time to um, to create a void of nothing, 
I don't think I don't think that's very helpful. I think you have to plan what are you going to fill this time with, and it could be time spent with family or friends. It could be exercise because I think I know that starts to sound cliche because we always say it's so important, but it's but that's what addresses the stress in your body. So I think um, that's a good thing to fill that space with. Um, it could also be um, another pursuit, like another um, creative pursuit, or just something that engages your brain in a different way whether that's related to medicine or not related to medicine. Um, so that was the first thing I did was I actually bought myself that time. Um, the next thing I did that was really helpful was I found a physician coach. Um, and that was, that was a great move for me because there was, I felt like there were so many pieces at play here. And I think, I think for everyone who's struggling with this, like there's parts that are tied to your, identity, there's uh, tied to your values, your your life goals, your finances, your family, um, and uh, just everything. It feels kind of overwhelming to try to figure everything out at once on your own. Um, and I think a physician coach who really understands what medicine is like can be really helpful to to both reflect with you and then also do some planning and keep you accountable um, and even give you advice like for where to go from here. Um, and for some people that might look like very similar to, to where they're at, but with some tweaks that are really important for them. Um, for some people it might look like a different job, but still mainly clinical medicine. And then for some people it might be a really big career leap, um, which is what I ended up doing. Um, I ended up going from full-time clinical to a full-time non-clinical job and then still with some shifts, three or four shifts a month. So that's a that's a pretty big shift. How did you decide to make that that bigger shift? Um, well, it, it was based on um, a number of a number of reasons, and some of them were like were family related. But um, I also was starting to really feel like I wanted to use my brain in a different way, um, and I wanted to be able to solve some of the problems that I was seeing on a daily basis and kind of and attack them from a different angle. Um, I also knew, though, that I didn't want to completely step out of clinical medicine because I didn't I felt like I didn't want to lose touch with that or kind of lose the, the pulse of what was going on there where the rubber actually meets the road. Um, so so what I started with was um, consulting. And I did that because it was a way to, um, you know, to fill that space that I had created for myself. Um, and actually make back some of the income too through consulting. It was a way to use my brain creatively. And then it was a way to work with other people who actually were trying to solve some of these problems in the healthcare system, but they needed the clinical perspective. Um, and I, I started thinking, you know, I was figuring out what kind of career was going to be right for me. I knew it was going to be some form of a hybrid career with clinical and non-clinical based on the consulting work that I was doing. And then um, an opportunity presented itself to work for one of the consulting firms that I had signed up for, which is FlipMD, um, and which is flip-md.com. And they were actually hiring for a full-time position to help grow the platform. So at that point, I knew I had done enough thinking and enough working with the coach that I knew that I would be ready to take um, to take a leap to doing a full-time um, as long as I was able to maintain some shifts. And they were very supportive of that, too. First of all, I love the way you took time not to do nothing, but actually time to 
look at things you could change and time that we'd fill with things that were meaningful and worthwhile for yourself, but also going into something where you could look at structural change, going into something where you could start solving problems rather than just looking at them and admiring them. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, this comes up all the time and, you know, unprompted, you're giving us all the answers that, that people always ask us for. So this is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it makes such a difference to like the, now the way that I view these problems when I see them on a shift is I kind of, you know, take note of them and I think about them with curiosity and think about how I can actually work on solving them later, as opposed to when I was full-time clinical, it sometimes it just felt crushing that there, here's another thing, like another way that a, a patient was poorly treated by the right. healthcare system. And I can't <clears throat> do anything about it because I'm getting handed another patient there's another person with a heart attack or a stroke or something like that that i need to go um try to do my best for yeah i mean now that you're on when you are on the treadmill now when you're on the the rat wheel if you like um there's actually a real positive to it which is that it's exposing you to things that you can do something about and you have the capacity in your other line to actually do something about that right exactly yeah that's been that's been very helpful for me definitely Caitlin, I really appreciate you coming on with us today and sharing not only your background, but also a hopeful approach to the future. Yeah. So I hope we stay connected and keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. I would love to um, to help you guys, as I said, and I think this is a great organization and this is something that we really need to draw attention to and make sure that we're really defining what's going on out there. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. Simon, Caitlin reminds me so much of our, our conversation with Lara Kinney on our bonus episode from season two. And what makes me think of that is they both had this military experience where they deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. And in that experience, somehow they faced this question of, of moral injury and how were they going to face these questions about caring for patients? And they brought it back with them to civilian medicine and recognized what they were facing in their civilian careers. Yeah, I, I wondered if some of those military experiences had sort of crystallized it because it's so in your face in some of these situations, you know, the story that Caitlin told of the uh, young man who needed medical care, that's a really obvious example of moral injury. And so maybe it was that experience that allowed her to see the more subtle issues that are going on in the healthcare system back in the US. Right. It also reminded me of the conversation we had with Richard Laquamont, which was also in season two, but it was episode 14. And the conversation about professionalism and how as we get further from what our commitment to society is, we start losing our connection to healthcare and we start almost losing our way. I just wonder if for them, their military training, which really doubled down on training and professionalism and leadership and professional development, helped them see more clearly what some of us in civilian medicine struggle to see. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think, again, it's being explicit about some of these things and seeing them more clearly when you see things in more stark contrast or more obvious examples. And uh, I think all of them have told stories that are very obvious examples that, that we can understand. And back stateside, you see these things in a different light, but still very important. Yeah. I also loved that she's not just leaving healthcare to escape. She's decided that she wants to change how people are practicing and is really committed to that on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I would double down on that because I speak to so many people who tell me that they're leaving healthcare because they just need out. And so really uh, respect Caitlin's thought process of leaving healthcare, at least partly, to make things better. Um, so I think that's just wonderful. Yeah. Thank you all for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation on those platforms. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well. Stay well.